Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's guest is Danny Nobus, clinical psychologist, psychoanalyst, and former chair of the Freud Museum, London. His main research interests include the history, theory, and practice of psychoanalysis, the history of psychiatry, and the intersections between psychoanalysis, philosophy, and the arts. In 2017, Dr. Nobis was awarded the Sarton Medal of the University of Ghent for his outstanding contributions to the history of psychoanalysis. I came to psychoanalysis via psychology, which sounds a bit weird, given that there's hardly any psychoanalysis in psychology. And I'm not a young man anymore. So the same was true back in the early 1980s when I uh, studied psychology. But I mean, look, I'd, I'd read some Freud, I'd, I'd read Jung, uh, I'd read a whole bunch of different things during my teens, looking for ideas and, 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 and trying to, to find um, some intellectual bearings, I think. And in the end, I studied psychology uh, because, because I thought, yeah, it, it would bring me close to some of the people's works I'd read during my teens. And uh, and it wasn't just Freud. As I said, it was Freud, Jung, <laughs> actually, Bachwan, Sri Rajnees, and, and, and quite a few other people. Um, um, but, but disillusioned I was, uh, and that's another statement, um, frustrated, angry, and disappointed I was when I discovered that in my first year of psychology, I um, I didn't hear anything about the people I'd, uh, I'd 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 come to know and appreciate during my teens. I I I heard a lot about statistics and I heard a lot about um, cognitivists and developmentalists, but I didn't hear anything about all the others. So I was very close to dropping out at the end of the first year. And, and to do something radically different, um, like like physics or, or chemistry. And, and then a friend of mine said, um, well, you, you need to wait until the second year because, because there's a bunch of people here who, um, um, who do talk about Freud. And, uh, and there's even a guy who talks about Lacan. And, and, and I'd, never, I'd never, ever heard of Lacan because I had not come across Lacan during my teens. And what I'm going to say is totally embarrassing. But the first time I wrote down Lacan in a notebook, um, because apparently, you know, I had to read him alongside Freud, I, I wrote down L-A-C-A-M-P. Right, so I misspelled uh, Lacan, and uh, and obviously couldn't find him because because yeah, I misspelled him. But but I thought okay, I'll give it another shot, and um, and so lo and behold, in in my second year, there was this um, professor. Um, who, um, 
who is dead now. Uh, he died a couple of years ago um, in his early 80s um, with, with the rather funny name um, of Julian Quackelbeam. <laughs> and, and that is as funny in, in Flemish and Dutch as it is in English, trust me. Um, and, uh, and this guy had trained as an educational uh, scientist and, and then subsequently became a Rogerian and then became a Jungian, but a couple of years before I uh, studied psychology, he, he'd discovered or rediscovered uh, Freud and Lacan, which I was still spelling as L-A-C-A-M-P. Um, but um, but that was it was the kind of stuff that I, that I wanted to know and and hear about, and and because he had discovered it quite recently he he taught it with a certain degree of excitement and enthusiasm uh, as you would if, if, if you've newly discovered um, someone whose works you you like so so we were not just exposed to the theory we were also exposed to um, the professor's own um, exhilarated and uh, how shall I put it um, you know youthful youthful enthusiasm and and I could say, yeah, and the rest is history, but but of course it isn't. Uh, so I could, you know, I could tell you more. Um, Please my, do. Well, my first, um, my first real, uh, and I'm using real here in the Lacanian sense. My first real uh, exposure to Lacan was when I was when I picked up a copy of uh, Écrit, which. As Belgians, we were not supposed to read in English. And, and mind you, this, this was way before Bruce Fink's translation was available. We did have uh, Alan Sheridan's uh, translation of the Selected Acre. But, uh, but, but, you know, we were supposed to read it in French because if you're Belgian, uh, you're supposed to be bi or even trilingual. So, so I will never forget the day that I picked up my, my copy of a Cree, and uh, and I opened it, and uh, and I read the first line of uh, the seminar on the Boulogne letter. So I skipped the introduction, as you know, whatever you know. I just go straight to to the first <coughs> um, essay, and and I couldn't understand a single word. Uh, but but as 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 we say in French. Um, um, what I said to, to, to my friends at the time in France, uh, je n'y comprends rien, mais ça me plaît. Right? I don't understand a single word, but I like it. Uh, which was exactly the opposite to the experience I had when I read, because I had to read, um, uh, I think and, and Piaget and, and some of the other. Uh, Skinner, uh, yeah, you know them. You did psychology, so you you, you know them. Um, it was exactly the opposite because because when I read Skinner, Piaget, I mean you can't put them all in the same bag. But when I read the mainstream psychologists, um, the experience I had was well, I do understand everything they say, but I don't like any of it. <laughs> so with Lacan, I didn't understand anything, but I liked it. And, and the reason why I liked it, it, it it's because 
Um, well, the notions, what he was talking about, because I could figure that out, you know, the man was talking about desire and fantasy and 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 and, uh, and, and subjectivity. You know, it, it it kind of resonated. But what I thought was, um, um, what I thought, not just psychoanalysis, but but the study of the human mind should be about. Right, so so that's how it all started, and and then I then I, I got uh, I, I got a bit more interested in it, and and so thankfully we were given the opportunity um, uh, by virtue of of Julian Crackleben, uh, but also by virtue of Paul Verhag, who who is still very much around, of course, and and who was. Who was also teaching uh, us because uh, he's a good ten years older than me, and and so he had already um, uh, been appointed as um, an assistant uh, professor in the department. So by virtue of, of of a small group of people, I was given the opportunity to to major, I think we would say in English, uh, in psychoanalysis as part of my psychology degree. Um, and and but had it not been for that, I I can honestly say that I may not be here talking to you today because I may have ended up becoming a physicist or a chemist or, or something like that. And this is at Ghent University, or yeah. So this is at Ghent University, and uh, well, I mean that that's another story. Um, I, I I I went to Ghent University because. Um, the only real alternative, um, again in the Lacanian sense of the uh, the only impossible alternative, <laughs> would have been me going to the Catholic University of Louvain. Um, and those are not the two universities in Belgium. Uh, I mean, we have more universities than that. But um, if you go through secondary education in Belgium, and, and now situation is slightly different and you come out with good grades then basically the, the options are twofold maybe threefold but there aren't that many options uh, so you either go to Ghent or you go to to Louvain or you go to Brussels but but for me it was either Ghent or Louvain and and I didn't want to go to to Louvain I should say Leuven because uh, Louvain is one of those institutions that um, during the early 1970s was, it's very Lacanian, you see, it was split in the middle um, and, um, and and they created a Flemish-speaking and a French-speaking university. So I would have gone to the Catholique Universiteit Leuven, but, uh, but I think you already understood as to why I didn't want to go there, right? So I'd spent 12 years of my life already um, uh, in in a Catholic boys' school, and, uh, and and mind you, it wasn't nearly as bad as some people uh, thought it was. Uh, but but I had enough, you know. I, I I had enough of Catholic education, and uh, and probably. I may have been exposed to psychoanalysis in, in Leuven as well, because there were people in Leuven in the theology department, mm -hmm. not so much in the psychology department, but in the theology department, 
people like Antoine Vergot, uh, for example, uh, who taught psychoanalysis in Lacan. Um, but I didn't want to go to Leuven because it was Catholic, and and so I went to Ghent, which 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 was also. Uh, better practically because uh, I come from a, a very working class background. Uh, I, I think it was the first person uh, in, in 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 my family. Well, I know I'm the first person in my family, but I think I'm probably the first person in in, in a very long generation of uh, people carrying my name going to university. And so it, it was practical because it meant that I could commute on a daily basis between uh, Brugge, uh, Bruges, where I, where I was born and where I grew up, and the University of Ghent. So, so my parents did not have to uh, worry about the financial aspect. And uh, yeah, but, but I had enough of, of Roman Catholicism, uh, basically. Uh, now, um, I assume that much like me, at one point you were exposed to, to Freud and maybe a bit of Jung, um, because otherwise uh, you wouldn't have picked it up, I assume. Um, but, but if I hadn't been exposed to, to, to Freud, and I should tell you that, that um, I, I was never exposed to Jung throughout my degree course, because, because yeah, there weren't any Jungians around. I mean, there were Rogerians. And, and there were systemic, uh, there were professors who were into systemic therapy. Um, so I, 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 I did learn a lot about, and it was not uninteresting. I did learn a lot about uh, Václavik and, and, and Jay Haley and, and, and Gregory Bateson, uh, but there was no Jung. Um, uh, but I assume, uh, I'm not sure, I don't want to interview you now, that at one point uh, they, they did cross your, cross your path, no? Yeah, but I really don't know how. I yeah. try to remember how I, people were like, when did you start reading For You Young? And I was like, sometime in high school, like when I was a teenager. But I don't remember like how I came across them. It must have just been like in the psychology section of a bookstore or something. I must have just picked it up or heard of them from media or... I can't remember a particular person introducing them to me. No, but I meant to the university. There must have been someone at university. There's no Jungians. No, no Freudians. Uh, well, in grad school. In undergrad, no. Right. Um, and then I went to graduate school. I got a PsyD, so it's a doctorate in psychology. And I thought it would be more eclectic because I just assumed that everyone understood that, you know, behavioral therapies and cognitive behavioral therapies weren't like everything like, yeah. like of course this isn't I see yeah. how this is a useful tool but of course this isn't how humans function like as a whole I just assumed that everyone knew that yeah. um <laughs> as my naive 20 something year old self um and then when I went to school there was there was all behavioral and cognitive behavioral but there was uh two analysts that were from New York that had retired in Florida and oh, yeah. they like had office space at the university and like taught like a couple of electives just to like have the office there and you know keep doing their research so thank god for them <laughs> because I took all the classes that they offered yeah, while I was there which I think total was maybe six yeah. and then I had and then for one of my rotations for my one of my externships um 
apparently the school I went to used to have a psychoanalytic program where they actually trained analysts. And there was someone who had been trained at the school uh, as a psychoanalyst and uh, ended up working at a hospital. And then he ran an externship at the local city hospital for students. And so I took, I took a class with him and it was a pharmacology class, but he was talking about pharmacology. He was like looking at all these different lenses of how to look at a person. And it was like the closest thing that I had gotten to anyone who wasn't just like super behavioral, even though it was a pharmacology class. So I just kind of followed him to his externship and then, uh, and then ended up working in hospitals for years because then I had an externship at a hospital. So who's going to give me a different kind of position? Yeah. <laughs> it was a completely sidetracked my my career for a little while but then once I got to New York I uh, did psychoanalytic training in the evenings after working at the hospital so I, I can't remember exactly whether I picked up Freud from the psychology section of my local library um, but what I can remember is that Freud um, wrote a lot about sex <laughs> and that um, and that the books about sex that had the name of Freud on them um, were not inaccessible to me when I was about 14 years old because um, probably because the librarian had made a mistake or, or, didn't, or didn't know himself that there was so much sex in Freud. But the library had this classification system, you see. Um, um, I mean, it, it, this, this is the library equivalent to um, the British Board of Film uh, classification. So, so they put, they, they, they put um, stickers on each book, right? And, and, and some stickers would say... Um, um, readable by everyone. Um, and some stickers would say parental guidance in Flemish. And some stickers would say um, only, only to be read by people over the age of 60. And then there were books only to be read over the age of 18. And then there were books with a purple sticker that were not accessible to anyone. Right, but I mean, we might talk about them later. Um, but, um, but, but yeah, probably because of the librarian's ignorance, uh, the Freud had, I think, a parental guidance sticker. But it meant that if if you were fourteen, you could actually borrow it. Um, so, uh, which was not the case for Masters and Johnson, which is the one I was really interested in. Um, you know, the, the, you know, human sexual behavior or the Kinsey reports, for example. So, um, so you can say, you know, it, it's it's my it's my youthful sexual curiosity that <laughs> that drove me to Freud and the fact that he had not been. Um, stigmatized by uh, by the sticker that would have prevented me from from accessing him. Um, there you go. And, and ditto with Jung. But but there's this you know there's less there's less sex in Jung than there is in Freud, obviously. Right. Yeah, that's a great way to get into Freud. I might start yeah. using that actually. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing I read by by Freud was obviously obviously the three essays on the theory of sexuality, and and obviously because it also have to be uh, the first essay in the book, um, Sexual Perversion. <laughs> I mean, I can say it was not my fault that it was the first essay in the book. It just happened to be the first essay in the book. Um, so, so there you go. Yeah. 
Um, but but Lacan, Lacan was, was just not available. Uh, it's not that Lacan was off limits. It was not available. There was no Lacan in my graduate school at all. I didn't even hear about Lacan until I went to New York. Yeah, but I, mean, I was even, thirty. But it wasn't. Even, it wasn't even in the library. I mean, I, 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 I don't think it was available. I didn't see it, and and that's why you know I wrote it L A C A M P, and then obviously Where do you think the P came from. Oh no, because no, <laughs> no, because when you say in French Lacan, you you can you can spell it L A C A M P. So so had his name been. Uh, L-A-C-A-M-P uh, you would have pronounced it in exactly the same way right Lacan um, but I didn't I didn't know that right. what else do you want to know how did you end up in London <laughs> oh well how much time have you got um, pull factors and push factors um, so after I graduated with my psychology degree in psychoanalysis <laughs> because I, mean, I have a mainstream uh, degree in clinical psychology that's what it says on my degree certificate because psychology is five years of full-time study and I'll forget about these uh, silly three-year degrees here in the, in, in, in the UK um, so it was a five-year full-time degree that um, is now, because of the Bologna Agreement, basically the equivalent of a bachelor's and a master's degree in, in, in the UK. And so I graduated with, with a degree in clinical psychology, but with a major in psychoanalysis. And, and then, well, I needed to decide what I was going to do with my life, uh, <laughs> like so many kids, I guess, at that age. And uh, But in a sense, the Belgian state had already decided that before me. And that was a mixed blessing because um, because when I graduated, um, the Belgian state had decided that I had to go to the army because because we had we still had compulsory military service at that time. Um, but I didn't want to go to the army, and that's not because I'm an I'm, I'm an utter total pacifist. It's because um, I, I thought the army was just going to be a complete waste of my time. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I was all, already five years older, or I would have been five years older than all the other army recruits, run. Uh, and uh, army service would have been. Ten months, I think, and, and I just, I just, I just couldn't see it. I just could not see it. Um, I haven't forget, forgotten about your question. So, so I decided, I, I decided to apply to be recognised as a conscientious objector, which, um, uh, which in practice was actually much more difficult than it sounds. Uh, but I'll. You know, I won't tell you the whole story. Um, the upshot was that I ended up working for two years without earning any money at all um, at the university in the department where uh, the likes of Paul Verhard were, were teaching. Um, so I managed to um, wriggle myself as a conscientious objector into that department. And, and then... Uh, I didn't have to finish uh, the two years because during those two years, the Belgian state 
abolished compulsory military service. And, and so suddenly my status was, was also abolished. Um, and then I had the opportunity um, to, to become a part-time research assistant there. So I applied for that, um, but it was only part-time. It was only 40%. So um, it, uh, it didn't really allow me to, to make a living. Um, but what it did allow me to do was, was to get a master's degree um, and, and, and to start doing a PhD. So there, there was, a, there was a, a point in my life, and I really don't know how I did it really, a, apart from the fact when you're that age, um, I mean, I don't recall ever feeling tired, really. So, so I worked at the university. I, I, I did a PhD, and, and I also worked as a human resources manager um, in, in DHL because I had to earn some money. Right. And so I did all that for about six, seven years of my life. And, and then um, I was fed up. I, I wasn't fed up with Belgium as such, but I was fed up with the university system and I was fed up with, with the department. And, and, the, and the main reason is that it wasn't a meritocracy. Now, I, I don't consider myself, uh, I never have, consider myself to, 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 to be a particularly clever person. But, um, but in order to get a job at the university, uh, you needed to know people um, or you needed to, 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 to carry the right uh, political cards. Um, so, so it was by no means the case at the time. Now it's it's different now that people's applications were judged on on the basis of what they had achieved and on the basis of of whatever their potential would be. Um, and I thought to myself, um, well, I'm 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 never going to be able to get a job here because I didn't know anyone. You know, and 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 I was not even prepared to 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 start schmoozing people uh, in 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 order to to think that it might facilitate me getting a job. So uh, so I just started looking elsewhere, basically, and and I started applying for various jobs. Uh, not just in the UK, but, but in, in, in other parts of Europe. Uh, not in Belgium, obviously, because yeah, in, in, in Leuven, it would have been the same. Actually, in Leuven, it would have been worse, because I, 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 I decided to go to the University of Ghent rather than to the University of Leuven. So it, it would have been unthinkable for them to appoint a, a lecturer, say, who had clearly at one point... Um, been an apostate and, and had, you know, relinquished his, 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 his Christian faith. But, um, but at that point in my life, um, I'd, I'd already started you know, giving talks in, 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 in various parts of, of Europe because I become, and that's another story, um, a, a member of the uh, Ecole de la Cause Freudienne and, 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 and the European School of Psychoanalysis. So that took us, uh, by definition, to Paris uh, every so often, but also to other parts of, uh, of Europe. And, and, and I met someone in London here um, uh, whose name is Parveen Adams. Uh, she, she's, uh, she doesn't live too far from where I live.
And she basically heard, because I told her, that I was looking for, for a job. And she said, well, why don't you apply to Brunel University London? Um, they might be interested in you. And, uh, and, and so I applied. And I, and I still don't know. I really don't know why, why they gave me the job. And, and, and the majority of my colleagues uh, also don't know. I, I mean, they, 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 they probably, but actually they've told me that, that, that it must have been a complete mistake. But, but I got the job. And, and and so I've been there now for for uh, almost 25 years. And it was tough. It was incredibly tough. I mean, the first six months in London were, were just about the toughest months probably in my entire life um, for all kinds of reasons. But um, it was tough. But, but, but I stayed and and now I still think that, yeah, I, I, I just pack my bags and go somewhere else. But I guess I'm just so uh, so neurotic that I never go anywhere. Uh, you know, I, I, I only ever think of packing my bags and going on holiday. I never go anywhere. There you go. You don't go on holiday? Uh, yeah, I go on holidays. <laughs> I do go on holidays. I'm, I'm talking about major life decisions here. <laughs> like giving it all up, uh, like you've done, Vanessa. <laughs> no, but look, I mean, I've had op opportunities over the years, um, including in the US, um, were an offer to come along that I think would be um, a major uh, improvement uh, on my, my current uh, personal and professional circumstances, then then I would accept it. Um, but uh, but now you run the psycho psychology psychoanalysis program there, yeah? No, I don't. No, I don't. What do you do? What, what do I do? <laughs> you don't want to know. You don't want to know. And and, and I'm not sure my your listeners would want to know. Um, no, the psychoanalysis program was closed down at oh, Brunel. No. Um, that's another story and, and I still have a handful of PhD students who do work in psychoanalysis but um, because I was recruited as a psychologist and, and, and because I have certificates uh, that say that I am a psychologist I can teach psychology so I'm teaching psychology but um, but it, it's not it's not psychoanalysis by no stretch of the imagination um, so uh, immediately after the, the, the psychoanalysis program was closed down uh, and that didn't involve me uh, having to resign precisely because I've got an appointment in psychology and psychology is booming um, including in the UK but immediately after that I, I was told to teach research methods <laughs> exactly the subject that uh, almost almost prompted me to drop out of psychology altogether I, I, I then ended up teaching um, because it's the kind of thing that no one else wants to teach you see uh, can I teach it? Yes. Uh, I mean, I still remember one of my students uh, afterwards sending me a note saying um, it, 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 was, it was a great pleasure to be taught by someone who is so knowledgeable about the subject and so, and so enthusiastic about it. And I thought, yeah, 
I can probably fake a lot of things, including including teaching research methods. So so there you go. Can I teach it? Yes. Can I can I teach it enthusiastically? Well, seemingly. Do I like it? No. Um, but there how you many go. years ago did the psychoanalysis program close? Two years ago. Okay. So it's still it's still very fresh. Yeah. And and it's not it's not the only university where the psychoanalysis program closed. Um, the psychoanalysis program uh, at Kingston University closed. Um, the psychoanalysis program at Middlesex University is about to close. Um, so there's, there's there's hardly anything left. Um, is that is that because there is no interest amongst students? No. Um, there's actually quite a bit of interest amongst uh, students. It is it is primarily because vice chancellors, university senior management, and I was part of it for twelve years, um, come to the conclusion that there's more money to be found in in either diverting resources towards undergraduate degrees, what we call undergraduate degrees, or diverting resources towards other kinds of master's programs that would then attract um, more student numbers. Um, so to give you an example, we have at Brunel uh, a master's in psychological sciences that does attract more students than I've ever had on, on my psychoanalysis degree, but it's essentially, it's a conversion course, you see. Um, so it's a course that is designed for people who do not have a background in psychology and who want to improve their employability chances by just retraining to some extent. Uh, as a psychologist. Uh, so by definition, that kind of program is likely to attract more students, okay? Um, so, yeah, what can I say? Uh, am I angry about it? Yeah, I'm fuming. I'm absolutely fuming. Am I going to be able to do anything about it? Well, me personally, no, no. But, um, so yeah, uh, I'm, not, I'm not totally desperate. It's uh, so depressing, though. Um, oh well, I'm I'm a happy pessimist. You see, um, the boat is sinking. It really is. Uh, we're all going down, but it it shouldn't stop us from having a party. So I, I react to it most of the time with with diabolical cynicism. And uh, I mean, look, if, if if anything is to change, it's not going to depend on the professors. Uh, or the members of staff, because I don't know what it's like in the US, but, but in the UK, and I can say this uh, without running the risk of, of your your listeners exposing me as as, <laughs> as as a teenage terrorist or something who's never given up on, on, on his rebellious ideas. No. Professors, members of staff are the baddies. I mean, there was there was a time that students were the baddies, and and that and that the professors were seen as the um, uh, the protectors of law and order. And and now it's exactly the way around. Uh, the professors are the baddies. Uh, if anything goes wrong, it's always our fault. Um, and I'm not just speaking for my institution. I'm speaking for other institutions as well. If 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 a student fails. Uh, oh, actually, actually, we can't use that anymore because it's not politically politically correct anymore. Apparently, students get really 
upset if you tell them that they fail. So you have to tell them that their success has been deferred, right? And um, so, so if a student's success has been deferred, whose whose fault is it? Well, it's the fault of the teacher, of the lecturer, of the professor, because the professor clearly has failed to appreciate those students' particular needs. So there you go. I can't hear you anymore, Vanessa. So no, you can. I'm just speechless. Okay, it's just because you're speechless. Yeah. Yeah, it's our fault. It's our fault. So every so often I'm being asked to go to attend workshops about how I need to change, accommodate, tailor my teaching. And, and if, if their success is deferred, um, um, if, if there is a difference in the Deridian sense at the point of their success, then we are to blame. So we coddle everyone. We're the baddies. We're the baddies. We're the baddies. Um, and that's why I'm saying, you know, if anything is going to change, it will have to come from the students, not from us. And why um, would the students want to be less coddled? That's never going to happen. <laughs> so we're doomed. Is it, we're doomed. I mean, the boat is sinking. The, uh, the, the, the boat is sinking. Absolutely. Uh, uh, we're, we're all going down. I, I mean, I've, I've written uh, on, on, on how university, many other people have written on this, on how um, universities have just become extensions of the neoliberal economy um, and, and, and how that has dramatically changed not only um, the, uh, the curriculum, but, uh, but every single aspect of university life. And, and some people have stated it much better than I stated now, but you see, it's, it's, it's not just universities who are to blame for that. It, it, uh, it, it's a broader structure, but there you go. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like exactly when I was working in the hospital, everything's about numbers and everything's about filling out paperwork for grants and nothing is about actual treatment. It's like in universities, it's not about learning. It's about right. like production and what job you can get when you get out and that sort of thing. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, when, when I invite, encourage my students to ask me questions about whatever it is I'm teaching, uh, be it research methods, <laughs> I rarely, I rarely um, get questions about about content or about uh, one or the other um, aspect of of the um, epistemology or the the, the the broader methodology that sits underneath the uh, the subject I'm teaching, uh, but I always get questions about um, what exactly they need to learn so that they can pass their exam. Um, so, so this is the instrumentalization, uh, the, the radical instrumentalization of learning, and much like you have the instrumentalization of of healthcare. Um, so, so it's not about the treatment. It's 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 about how quickly we can get you out of the hospital um, in a more or less satisfactory way, so that uh, you can fit into um, the good statistic and and, and your clinic is uh, is being regarded as a um, 
as a highly performing clinic. <laughs> it's, 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 it's shocking. It is absolutely shocking. But that's the world we live in. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm a happy pessimist. It's so depressing, though. But I, that's why I had to leave the hospital eventually because I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, but thinking about the fact that it's like that in the universities, it's like if even the places where people are supposed to learn to be able to think are only focused on production and like what passing the test and what job I can get, then like where are people ever going to learn to think and how long has it been already that the people growing up now never even think about the fact that it was or could be any other way? Yeah, I can't answer that question, but what I can say is, uh, in all honesty, that uh, kids definitely don't learn how to think critically at university anymore. Um, I'm not even sure they, they still learn how to think. Um, I mean, they, they learn how to um, how to get the most... They learn about efficiencies, effectiveness, and how to economize. They learn about the three E's, basically. That is to say, they learn about how to get the most out of their degree as quickly as possible in order for them to then contribute to the economy. That's what they learn. And and, and it's... it's, it's in, Incredibly tragic. It's 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 hugely tragic. Now, what is even more tragic is that I'm then expected a lot of the time to adapt my teaching to what the students desire. I mean, we we we, we can look at this in Lacanian terms and talk about the students' desire and the institutional desire and 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 the fantasy that underpins it. So I'm. I'm expected to adjust my teaching to what the students desire, uh, but of course the students' desire is already filtered and mediated, contaminated, I could say, um, by the fact that they have been commodified on account of the economic process in, 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 in which they have unconsciously started to participate. Yeah, uh, I mean, one of, one of the major issues that we had a couple of years ago here in, in 2012 is that and that's, I was still a senior manager myself then at the time, that from one year to the next, the uh, university fees went up from £3,000 a year to £9,000 a year. Now, compared to what students pay in, um, in, uh, in places like Harvard or Columbia, there's still peanuts, right? Um, but but from, from one year to the next, it went up. Uh, it tripled. And so we were very concerned about the fact that there would be a, a drop in, in uh, applications, and, and it was a small drop, but 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 not, not nearly as dramatic as we thought it was going to be. But but then the next thing that we started to worry about is how um, this increased cost of higher education would transform the students' expectations. Right. And it has transformed students' expectations, uh, i.e., um, more and more students have come to see their education as a service that they purchase and, and that they have the right to criticize like you would criticize um, the service that you receive in, a, in an expensive hotel that you've paid for during your holiday. 
So they evaluate the educational service that they receive in terms of the money that they paid for it. Now, that means that students have to, um, that have to some extent, um, um, self-identified um, not only as customers, but as consumers of higher education. But it's actually much worse than, much worse than that. Yeah. Um, it's much worse than that because apart from being consumers of higher education, they themselves, and they don't realize it, have been commodified by the system, by the broad neoliberal economic system that wants them to go through higher education as quickly as possible in order to then contribute to the economy as much as possible um, by virtue of the skills, and that's the other thing uh, that we haven't talked about, that, that by virtue of the skills that they've learned at university, because there's been a shift away from um, content-based teaching uh, let alone theory. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure what it's like in the US, but, but you know, you're not really supposed to teach kids theory anymore to, to, to them being taught skills, transferable skills, employability skills, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, the, the, so, so, yeah, they are a commodity. They have been commodified. Um, and... I mean, you and I, and that's where my pessimism lies. I mean, you and I are not going to make a difference, but, but I still hope, um, I still have hope that, um, that maybe out there there is some, there are some 18, 19 years old, 19 years old who, who, who will say, we've had enough of this. Um, uh, we, don't, we, we, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to do this. Um, we, want, we, uh, we, we, we want to know what it is to, to, to think critically about the world in which we live, because that's the only way in, 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 in which we, as the future generation, will be able to make a difference. But look, maybe, maybe that's my fantasy or my illusion as well. Yeah, but at least the teenagers are starting to rebel. I, I've been saying that for years, that, like, the teenagers had not been rebelling for a long time. They really hadn't. Like, when I was teaching at universities, like, everybody was just, like, getting sushi and going to Chipotle and on their phones and taking Prozac, and there was, like, no aggression or anything. But at least, like, with the Parkland students and, like, Greta Thunberg here in Stockholm with the environment, you know, like, the, the real... People that are speaking out are the teenagers again. Well, that's what it takes. That's what it takes. Um, uh, I mean, the environment I know is now very much on kids' minds, and 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 I think the work that uh, that Greta is doing is absolutely fantastic. Um, and and hopefully, um, from 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 kicking kids um, and, and a new sense of conscience that is focused on the environment and ecological matters, um, one can also kick them a conscience that uh, gets them to think critically about other aspects of, of their life. Right, um, it's like they haven't even had an opportunity to think about that because the environment is seriously a catastrophe and then like in the America people are just getting shot in school so first they'll tackle that and then maybe they'll think more about critical thinking yeah no absolutely well 
No, but if you get them to think about the environment and how we need to do something about the environment now, um, if, if, if we do not want to be seen as, as the first living species that is responsible for its own complete self-extinction, then, um, yeah, what's happening now um, is, is, is fantastic. And, but hopefully, I, I say, it will also lead to other things. I mean, hopefully, it will create more awareness. But, but, but I hope that it's going to lead to other things and, and, and that, that, that the younger generation um, might one day um, also, like they did in, uh, in 1968, um, occupy university and say, we've had enough. We, 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 we've had enough. Um, but the problem there is, um, to use the word that you used earlier, um, is, is that they're, they're cuddled, you see, or at, least, or at least they're told that they have the right, that they can claim the right, that they are entitled to expect a cuddle. Well, um, I mean, even at the very level of the university discourse now, uh, it, it's suffused with um, with with false, fake um, words of care that that many kids obviously buy uh, because they literally because they see it as as evidence of a good quality service that they get. You know, and in, in many institutions, you can't even refer to students anymore. Uh, so, so forget about uh, what I said earlier on about being a failure and not being politically correct. I mean, there is now um, a, a gradual transition towards students not being politically correct anymore because it is it is rumoured that it 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 it, it inadvertently uh, puts the learner into into a passive uh, place. So you need to talk about pills, partners in learning. You know, as in the, the students have to be given the opportunity to participate in the construction of the curriculum so that they can feel uh, not only um, that they are valued, but that they can contribute to what they're going to learn. Yeah? And it's fake. It is totally, it's totally fake. Right? Um, but that's how students' expectations are being shaped in order to then institutions to be better, or so they believe, uh, at selling their service, you see. Um, if you are being told and you buy it that you can participate in the service delivery, well, in all likelihood, you're going to be happier, uh, even if the service that you get is total crap, because you will have been fooled into thinking that you had a hand in it. Instead Sorry. of there's amazing, no, I, I love this rant. And as you can tell, as, as you can, well, apparently I'm ranting a lot. Um, uh, I got a fantastic review the other day of a paper on masculinity that I submitted to a journal, and, and, and I sent it to, to various people because it was the best review I ever got. I'm not sure I should read it out, but it's fantastic. Um, so apparently I'm ranting a lot these days. But, but, I, but, I, but I think we need, you know, we, 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 need, we need people to stand up, and, and, I, and I think it's the youngsters uh, that need to do it. Uh, so that's me rabble rousing now, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> because it's their future, and, 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 and they, they can make difference, and, and, and they probably feel less tired than me <laughs> after a day's ranting. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. 
you've just heard a discussion with Professor Danny Nobis. For more, please visit our website, renderingunconscious.org, or my website, drvanessasinclair.net. Strap that straight jacket real tight, genital angels. I'm Luther from Water. Not possessing the element of dominance. Possessed is active. Are the one doing the the act on and or anything in between pleasure? The stance of the others as explore the well-known. A exciting facets of the green and complex. Nothing's over and of genital. On with something on. Place and function. Collage, montage. Vanessa Sinclair, are you here? Carl Abrahamson. No matter in which well and therefore tit like dots separate, lane. How are we loving, laughing, identity, gender, and themselves to be? They have taken CC, New York presenting, like an eternity, the hollow words, literally, first place. We come, mind off.